As we look in Hebrews chapter 11, now we've gone 10 chapters. We're going to kind of start getting into the home stretch. I mean, there's a lot of ground to cover, a lot of meat left in this marvelous letter. But as we're considering this, I want to look at it, just take a minute to summarize, because in chapter 10, remember, we talked about the writer summarizes much of what he's covered up until that point. And we do well, as I mentioned so many times, you guys, you know, context is all important. So what the writer's been doing all through these chapters is he's systematically unpacked and dissected the old covenant, the, the law of Moses, and looked at many aspects of what that was. He, he, the main thing that he's been driving home over and over and over again is that Jesus is superior. He is better, better than the prophets, better than angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than Joshua. We look at the person of Christ, that Jesus, God the Son, is better in every regard to these beings, to these people, to these men, to the angels and all. And then we look at not just the person of Christ, but we look at the work of Christ. And and what the writer's been doing there is he's been illustrating that the work of Christ is superior as well. He says that you have, that we have a superior high priest. He's a high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, that guy that mysteriously shows up, comes out of the fog, blesses Abraham and disappears. And then we looked at that at length in chapter 7 and and on. And so we've looked at that he not only is a better high priest, but that he brings in a better covenant. We just read that in 1 Corinthians, that this is the new covenant in my blood, the contract. That's what's being said there, that God always deals with man through covenants and that the old covenant was expired. It was done in Christ and and that the new covenant is better. Why is it better? Because we don't have to worry about partial atonement. We know that through that one sacrifice that the covenant is complete, that it's a covenant that lasts forever. It's something that actually works on our behalves because we do nothing but simply come and by faith believe it. The work is done. Remember we looked at, he do, he holds up both sides of the covenant. Remember we looked at that, that he not only institutes the covenant, but he says, I'm going to be your surety. I'm going to co-sign on it as well because he knows that we're powerless. So a better covenant. We looked at the fact that we have a better sanctuary, that he ministers in this, in the heavenly sanctuary. He ministers in the very throne room of God. And we looked at, remember we went and we looked at Revelation chapter 5 where, where the writer here, he talks about the tabernacle and all of the implements and we saw that they show up. In the book of Revelation that they actually, there's the fulfillment that's the heavenly, that the earthly was a shadow, a duplicate of. And so we have a better sanctuary. They don't, it's not the high priest once a year. It's Jesus ministering on your behalf, on my behalf, perpetually, daily, as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, that he is there before the Father interceding for us. And then we looked at, finally, the the sacrifice itself. No longer would it be the blood of bulls and goats and, and this endless repetition, as I mentioned. But now, through the blood of Christ, one sacrifice, perfect sacrifice, once for all, 
that no longer do we have to walk around with a consciousness of sin that needs to be atoned for, but that when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, to die, that it was finished. And so what can we do? We can rest. We can rest in the power of the cross. We can rest in the finished work of Jesus. We can come into his presence boldly. We can enter into this relationship where he knows us by name, as as Colton was so aptly saying, that, that he numbers the hair on our heads, that he pursues us. That's the relationship. That's what comes through that perfect sacrifice. And so, we, we finished up last week looking at, I'm just going to back up a couple of verses. They won't be on the, the screen, but in, in, just to catch the flow and, the, and the, the momentum here, in chapter 10, verse 35, remember in chapter 10, the writer was summarizing. And so he says, therefore, after he summarizes, he says, therefore, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. What he's saying is in light of these truths, in light of all that I've been saying, don't throw it all away. Don't do it. He's encouraging these Jewish Christians, these Hebrew Christians in the first century who were so pressed. There, there was so much pressure in their lives. There was so much going on. Persecution, ostracization, and, 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 and in every way, losing so much. He's saying, don't throw it away. Hold on. Remember, we looked at, at that last week. We looked at Draw near, hold fast, stick together. Those were the three things that he brought out. And and we do well to heed the same because our culture presses in on us in a whole different way. And yet it does, doesn't it? And so what he's doing is he's saying there's a reward at the end of all of this. This is going to end well. Hold on to that and know that this, what the Apostle Paul calls a momentary light affliction. And he when he's saying that, I mean, that has some weight. That guy got run out of every town in the Roman Empire, practically. He got left for dead. He was shipwrecked, snake-bitten. He was beaten with rods and stoned, and I mean, on and on. And he said, ah, it's just a light affliction for, for a moment. And, and yet, as we understand his per- perspective, that, that he had a heavenly perspective, that he could actually say that and mean it. And so what the writer's saying here to these people is, is hang on. It's not going to always be like this. And that's just good advice for us. When, when our lives are pressed in, there's a temptation to think, you know what? This is never going to stop. This is just going to go on and on and on. And, and we do well to remember that it won't always be like this and that God is moving and that he is working on my behalf even when it doesn't feel like it. He talks about this reward. He says there's a reward at the end of it. And in verse 6, we'll look at this morning. We're not going to go there right yet. But he says he's a rewarder, that God is a rewarder to those that diligently seek him. And we'll look at what that means. And then going further on, at the end of chapter 10, in verses 38 and 39, he says, now the just shall live by faith. There's that word. What does it mean? We're going to look at that in more depth this morning. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But then in verse 39, it starts with the word, but, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition or to being damned. That's what perdition is. 
but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. That's the reward. That's what he's talking about in context. So in closing chapter 10, the writer's saying that the way forward is not through Judaism. It's not through the law. The way forward for the children of God, for the people of God, is through faith, through coming away from having it based on what my senses are doing. Remember, we've looked at that in, in, in great depth over the last couple of months, that, that in Judaism, that it just fed the senses with the temple and the sacrifices and, and, and the priests and the, all the stuff, the robes and, and all. And, and the writer's saying, no, 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 no. It's not an external thing anymore because God is going after your heart. And so as we look at Hebrews chapter 11, it's not, he's, he's wanting to pull these guys' attention off of the law of Moses because they had been steeped in it. And we've, we've looked at all the isms that are out there, that there are things that beckon to us that actually make sense, that, that pull at us because of our senses. And I look at so much of the junk on television and it's designed to, to pull at you through the material realm. And yet what he's saying is there's something far deeper than that because what God is after is your heart. What God is after is, is impacting your soul. So uh, when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, it's it's one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. It, it's known as the great chapter on faith, or uh, some have called it the hall of faith, because what the writer is going to do now is he's going to reach all the way back to creation. And he's going to begin to give illustration after illustration, example after example of what it is to walk by faith. He's saying to these people, this is nothing new. God has always been after faithful men and women. He has always been about people simply coming to him and believing him. And we'll look at that, especially as we get into Abraham, where righteousness, actually righteousness was accounted to Abraham by faith. Uh, And we'll get to that probably next week. I don't think we're going to get there this morning. We're going to be a little bit, I'm going to be pressed for time getting through this. So uh, at any rate, I want you to understand that faith is essential. It's it's an essential component. This is not peripheral doctrinal stuff. This is essential stuff. This is faith is central to our relationship with God. The the just shall live by faith. That's what he said in chapter ten. And now he's going to unpack that for us and let us know what that means. Essentially, Someone shared the gospel with me, with you, at some point, and you chose to believe it. If you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian this morning, you are a believer. You are somebody who has come to faith. And we're going to look at what faith is. We're going to look at some aspects of what faith isn't as we go along here. But all of us have placed faith in him. If that is indeed the mark of our lives, if I name the name Christ, then I am a person of faith. So one thing that's important is why does he go all the way back to creation? Because from Adam's time, God has honored faith. Uh, chapter 11 is so very important. The examples of simple, simple faith that he gives or one after another here, and we'll be looking at those for the next three weeks. And yet it's not just simple faith. It's simply profound faith because the basis of our relationship with him is by faith. It's by simply trusting, by believing. 
Something to note here is some of the really important people in God's word are left out of this. And and it might occur to you why. Why is that the case? Uh, And also some guys that are relatively obscure are included. And uh, I guess what I see in that is that he sees and knows all. Remember, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 31 in chapter 8, and he said, For they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And so he's no respecter of persons. And what that tells me is that this isn't just for these big kahuna guys, kahuna, uh, but it's it's not just for these guys that are really famous. But this has application to you, to me, that this is meat and potato stuff. This is stuff that is directly applicable to my life. So in in verse 1, as we begin to look at this, we see both a definition and a description of faith. Uh, In verse 2, then the writer will give an illustration of what that is. And then after that, he'll begin to go into, he'll go back to creation and and begin to unpack it. But let's begin and pick it up in verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, in the New American Standard Bible, also, also the English Standard Bible, other main translations, uh, it's it's rendered this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Either one applies, whether it's substance or assurance, evidence or conviction, it's the same thing. It's just looking at it through a little different language. Uh, but here's something I came across. Faith is a, a giving substance to, a making real of hoped for things. All right? That is, things which are not yet seen. By faith, we are sure that eternal things are. By hope, we are confident that we shall have them. Isn't that good? So, again, the essential nature of faith, just by definition, it's a description here of what faith does and how it works. The substance of things hoped for, as we look at that, as we begin to take apart verse 1, that's also rendered the essence or the assurance, the confident expectation or the foundation. Now, the Greek word, and, and you know, I like to get off, sometimes I get off into the weeds when I study the original language, but this is really important. On this one, the Greek word is hypostasis. Literally, what it means is to stand under, to support all right. The reason why I call this message foundational faith is that hypostasis is the substance. It's the word substance in, in verse one. And, and it's very important that we understand that. Now, I was thinking about this and I was, I was thinking, you know, I, I was a contractor in California for many years. I, I still hold a California contractor's license. Like that does mean good now. But, but the point is, is that if you're going to go build a building, whether it's there or here, or wherever, the first thing you do when you grade the soil is you have to do what's called a soil compaction test because and engineers, they have books that tell what kind of soils in different places and all that. And I don't want to get into all that. But the point is, is that there is a certain percentage of air and water in the soil. And so what you have to do in order to build a foundation that will hold up is you have to compact it. You have to reach a certain level of compaction. That's why, and Jesus wasn't doing engineering, but that's why in Matthew and in Luke, when Jesus talks about the difference between building your house on a rock, not much water, not much air in that, you're going to have a stable foundation, or building your house on sand, saturated with water. It doesn't hold up. So when we talk about faith, this word hypostasis 
It's talking about a supporting thing. It's talking about a foundational thing. This is a foundational truth. That's why that word is used. Because is there solid ground under what we believe? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the foundation of our hope. That's what the writer is saying. It's the thing that supports our hope. And so understand that. Faith must have a foundation. It's not blind faith. It's not a feeling. But there's an object to faith. There's an object. True faith, faith in Christ, has an object. If if I want to have faith in evolution, there's an object to my faith. It's that everything evolved from primordial ooze and all. If you believe that, then that actually, for in my opinion, it takes more faith to believe that than that there was intelligent design behind the creation. The point is, is there's always an object to faith. And we know as Christians that the object is Christ. Here's something that Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, I am told in the word of God to believe. What am I to believe? I'm bidden to look. To what am I to look? What is the object of my hope belief, and confidence? The reply is simple. The object of faith to a sinner is Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. This is good. He says, we come to believe in the eternal love of the Father as the result of trusting the precious blood of the Son. So in other words, if you want to know God, what the writer says at the very beginning of this letter, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, he says, he says, God in time past revealed himself through the, to the, the fathers through the prophets, but in these last days has revealed to us, himself to us in Son. In other words, if you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus. You will know God through the lens of the person of Christ. It's not the other way around. It's all about Jesus. If you want to understand the Father, Jesus told, he said, Thomas said, was it, no, it was Philip, show us the Father in, in, in the Gospel of John. And he said, if you, have you been with me so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know the Father, know me. Why? Because what Hebrews 1, again, what it says, he's the exact representation of his nature. He's the radiance of his, the outshining of his glory. He's a chip off the old block. He is the representation of God to man. So this thing called faith that we have has to have an object. There has to be something that we focus our faith on. It's not faith in faith. That's a really popular one out there. Uh, people say, well, I have my faith. Well, good for you. What is the object of your faith? Is it you? Because very often in a, in a godless world that's kind of religious, that's the case. The object of my faith is my opinion about God. And, and Paul in the book of Romans says, no, no, no. I'm paraphrasing. He says, that's not going to get it. You can have a lowercase g God that you can stick in your back pocket, but that doesn't change the God of the universe, the God that sent his son to die on the cross, to take your sin, to atone completely for your sin, to resurrect, to sit at the right hand of the Father and now intercede for us. That's the object of our faith. He is the object of our faith. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in my ideas about God. But there is a singular object of faith. 
His name is Jesus. He said, this way is a narrow way. It's not like the broad highway that leads to destruction. There's one way. So he talks about that. This is not a generic, convenient God. Uh, It's an intelligent approach to God as he's revealed himself by his Holy Spirit and through his word. That's how we know. That's why we do what we do here on Sunday mornings, folks. And and what I pray you do in your own time is that as we study his word, we know who he is. We understand what he's about. We come closer to him because we understand that through his word, this relationship comes about that we understand what it is he wants of us and, and what it is that, that uh, how this this definition of faith works in our lives. So he says it's the the substance of things not seen, or the substance of of things hoped for, but then the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. The, The word conviction simply means to be convinced. So as I'm convinced of who he is, uh, I'm not only convinced, but I'm trusting that the object of my faith can and will accomplish what I can't accomplish myself. That's why he says the reward is life. Real faith is grounded in God and Christ and in his word. Period. That's it. There's so much out there that will try to pull you away from that simple truth. Verse 2, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Now, the word elders there is the word presbyteros. And what it is, it's where we get the word presbytery or presbyterian. And it's talking about uh, like the Presbyterian church was originally set up. It's Parts of it have strayed far afield. But but it was originally set up as, as governance by the elders of the church. That's why that word is used. But what he's saying here is the men of old. That's how it's rendered in other translations the elders, uh, that they obtained a good testimony. But it's pertaining to a person who's lived in ancient times. That's what that means. What the writer's doing is he's he's setting the stage for reaching back to creation and then coming forward with case by case by case by case. So he's talking about people that lived a long time before he did. Now we know that these are ancient writings. These are 2,000-year-old writings, but he's going back to the Father, actually back to creation, and then coming forward. So uh, what he's doing is he's giving examples of these people who have walked by faith. And and, and he's going to launch into that. In verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Now that can kind of tie you in knots, but let me unpack it a little bit. Why does he start with creation? First of all, if you look in Romans chapter 1, Psalm 19, a lot of other places in God's word, essentially what God is doing uh, through the people, these writers, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he's saying, if you don't think that I exist, look at the creation itself. Because the creation reveals the existence of God. It's interesting. Over 90% of our planet does not believe in evolution. You have a few people that make a lot of noise that put those kind of hypotheses forward. And at the end of the day, it's kind of ridiculous. People intuitively believe that the universe was created. It takes far less faith to look out and to see that there's intelligent design to all of this. You, and uh, you can believe what you want at the end of the day, but what you believe determines 
a lot. And so when we look at this, something there's some wordplay here in the Greek that's really interesting. Now, when he talks about, uh, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, uh, that is not the word cosmos, which is the most common word for world in the New Testament. It's the word anos, uh, and it's the same word that was used in chapter 1. Let me unpack that a bit so you understand where I'm going. Cosmos is the material world and also the world system which exists that's in rebellion towards God. So when he says that we're in but not of the world, the cosmos, he's saying that we are in this world, but we're not part of the the, the system that is in rebellion towards God. Okay, but now what he's talking about uh, this word aenos is it's a far broader understanding. He's saying, by faith we understand that the world's time and space itself, all that is, the ages, is where we get the word eons. That's what he's talking about. So what he's saying is that when he says, by faith we understand that the world's, the, aeon, the aenos, aenos, I can't get that right, um, we're framed by the word of God. He's saying that all that is, the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In other words, God is behind it all. He came up with, he spoke the physical universe into existence. And before that, he owns time and space, that he's over all of it. So the things that were made were made of things which are not visible. So, just understanding where he's coming from with that, this concept reveals the solid basis of faith towards God. In other words, that he is the creator and he's the ruler. God himself demanded. He, he In Job chapter 38, he demands from Job, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Uh, he has a lot more questions for Job there. We're not going to go there. But um, the answer to God's question of Job is why we can understand the existence of things by faith. Uh, remember, the first century Hebrew believers were struggling with the fact that Judaism was rooted in the material realm. And what the writer is wanting to do is to pull their attention off of the material realm and get it onto the immaterial realm because that's where faith is an operation. It's not something that goes against reason. Understand this. Faith goes beyond reason, but it's not against reason. So, Hopefully you'll understand that more as we go along. He clarifies the things which are seen are made of things, were not made of things which are visible. So the access to faith is not through the senses. That's the point of what he's saying. So uh, bear with me on this. This gets a little technical, but but I, I really want you guys to understand what is being said when he talks about faith. Because, and, and you know, frankly, it's, <laughs> it's the nature of faith. Uh, to have to take hold of something you can't see. And so Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 18, he makes reference to the eyes of your heart. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. What's he talking about? We don't have eyeballs on our heart. No, he's saying that this thing called faith is we see with our heart. We, I have a friend that passes a big church in San Diego, and, and he's a musician. He wrote a song once. He said, you can see him with your heart when you stop looking with your eyes. That's the writer's point here, is that we see him with our heart. We see him not in the material, but in, in the spiritual realm. 
That's, it's so important. So the problem is, these guys were struggling. The, the problem that they had, and it's something that we all face, is there's something in the invisible world that you're not believing. I don't know if I can trust God one more day. I know that when my life gets pressed in, that there are times where it's like, do I really trust that what he's doing is for my good? Do I really trust that even though this really hurts, that he's in control? Yeah, that's where our faith is, is stretched. Faith is like a muscle, folks. It, it, you know, if, if you go work out, and, and I don't do that a lot, <clears throat> tell. But the point is, faith is like a muscle. It has to be exercised. And when we exercise, what happens? We get stretched. We get sore. And yet, what God is doing all the time, I've said many times, he is far more interested in what he wants to do in your heart, in your life, than how comfortable you are this moment. That doesn't mean that he's a cruel ogre that's up there with a two-by-four getting ready to whack you when you're out of line. That's not the God that we serve, that we love. But he will work, and he will allow our faith to be stretched, and he does that all the time. We'll talk about that at great length in chapter 12 when he talks about what it is to be chastised by the Lord. And anybody that belongs to him will be chastised, and that's what he says. But the point here is that faith is stretched. Sometimes we don't like it. Very often we don't like it. James talks about in James chapter 1, count it all joy, brethren, when you endure various trials because it produces a stretching of your faith. But that has its result. And we'll go into that as we go along as well. So we all face this. We all face areas of unbelief in our lives. And as he brings us to places where we have to choose to believe, choose to trust, that's the cutting edge of faith. That's the cutting edge of growth in our lives. Because if we didn't face those things, very often we would just kind of go along. And yet he's faithful. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Now what on earth is he talking about there? One of the things that I see here is that when he says he being dead still speaks, right off the writer is reminding them and us that faith is not necessarily rewarded while we're still alive. Very often, and we'll see as we go through this chapter, that people went through horrible things, walking by faith. And so there's a lot of theology out there that says, you know, you believe, then you're just going to prosper, and you're going to have health, you're going to have money, you're going to this, and that. That is hogwash. Very often for the people of God, life is hard. But we press in. We do well to press in and to hold on. That's why he says that in chapter 10. Draw near, hold fast, stick together. Because life is difficult. Life for these people was difficult in the first century. And life is difficult for us too, isn't it? At times it's very difficult. At times we have nothing but to by faith hold on to what it is that God's doing in our lives. And we may not see the answer of that in this life. That's why he says, he being dead still speaks. And in Genesis chapter 4, talks about, I'll read this briefly, uh, the the story of Cain and Abel. It says, now Abel, in, in 
chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Now Abel, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So uh, Abel's a, a rancher and Cain's a farmer. Uh, and it, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So here's Cain, the firstborn, the first, he's the first son, and, and essentially he's a murderer. Abel was the second, the younger brother. Now the difference here is not between animal and vegetable sacrifices. I've read some stuff that's like, no, 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 that's just, that doesn't make any sense. The difference is that Abel's sacrifice was made by faith. Cain's was not. Cain was, Cain was faithless. God spoke to both of these guys, and yet he says that Cain was faithless and offered a bad sacrifice. That's the point the writer's making here. Why? Because the text focuses on each brother's attitude. When God accepted Abel's sacrifice, Cain hated God and had jealousy towards his brother. Ended up killing him. But that's also the mark of faithless men and has been ever since. Now, the attitudes here, Abel is saying essentially through his sacrifice, I trust your character, God. I trust what you say against the opposition of my older brother. I will still sacrifice the way I know I should. Cain essentially is saying in this, I know you're there, but I don't trust who you are. I don't trust your character, God. And I'm angry at you for saying no to me. So the Hebrew Christians that were, that the writer is, is addressing here, they would, being steeped in the Old Testament, they would, they would totally relate to this and they'd think, you know, that's right. I want to be like Abel. I want to be the guy that's faithful. So that's where he's going when he goes all the way back. Like I said, he goes all the way back to the creation and he begins to draw this faith thing forward, saying that Abel was the faithful brother. He was the faithful one. Now, in verse 5, he talks about Enoch, who was seven generations from Adam. He was taken away so that he did not see death. Uh, Enoch and Elijah are the only two guys in the word of God that didn't physically die. Uh, Enoch got translated. Remember, Elijah got caught up in the, the whirlwind thing, the chariot and all that. Um, but it, so it says that he was taken away and he didn't see death and he was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So Enoch is Methuselah's father in Genesis chapter 5. I'm not going to go there. Uh, Enoch fathered Methuselah at 65 years old, and then he walked with God for 300 years. Which in those days, with those generations, I know, I think 300 years, really? But that actually wasn't all that long. Uh, these guys lived to be 950 or whatever years old. I mean, back then. And I, you know, I read some stuff one time and they were saying, well, it's because, you know, sin hadn't taken as whole, much hold. I don't know. I, it's something I'm really curious and I'll find out when we get there. But he walked with him for 300 years. It says, and then he was not. That's what it says in Genesis, that he was translated, that he was taken up. Methuselah also walked with God. His father Enoch modeled righteousness to him for 300 years by faith. So question, how do we know that Enoch was faithful? The answer is found in the New Testament in the book of Jude. Jesus' brother Jude wrote a a one-chapter letter, and in Jude 14 and 15, we read, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, 
to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, did it have some things to say about ungodly people? But the point is, is this is spoken from the lips of a godly man. And so Enoch served the Lord in a wicked generation for 300 years. He trusted God's character and he pressed on against the odds. He was sort of like Noah in that manner that he was surrounded with godlessness, as he says. But by faith, he clung to the promises. He clung to God. He says, essentially, he's saying, I'm not going to live this way. I'm not going to live the way that all these other people live. And so Enoch is an example of faith. It, it made a lot of sense to these Hebrew believers in the first century. Frankly, it doesn't make as much sense to me, but hey, we're going to go there anyway. Verse 6, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Real faith, biblical saving faith says I believe. I believe. I believe that he is. In other words, he's there. I don't see him, but I trust that God is there. I trust that he exists. I trust that he's there. I also believe that he's a rewarder to those that diligently seek. Now, the word diligence means careful and persistent work or effort. It means that you are focused. It's not just a haphazard thing. When he says diligently seek him, he's not talking about... Now, understand, this is not a works-based salvation. Because if he's the rewarder of people that diligently seek him, isn't that saying it's by work, that my diligently seeking? No, he's saying you have. if you have already come to faith, if you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, the outflow of your faith is you are going to diligently seek him. That's the proof. James says faith without works is dead. That if you are not in a place where you're walking by faith, you're not going to be seeking God. Or if you have some vain faith that doesn't really mean anything, you're not going to be seeking the God of the Bible. You're not going to be seeking God as he is. Real faith produces work. All right? Real faith produces diligence. It's part of what we do as children of God. So, It's not about work. It's about the fact that he's the rewarder of those that seek him. Why do I seek him? Because I believe him. Because I believe that he is. And so the rewarder is Jesus, and and that is that he died for me. The reward is, as a result, I get to live forever. And so that's where he's going with this. He's saying that, that by faith... We believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those of us that seek him. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So Noah was told by God to build this ark. You guys all know the story in his generation. It took him 120 years to build it, and he put up with a lot while he was doing it. There were a lot of pressures from his generation against him coming to bear. So Noah's confidence, Noah's trust was in God, and that God was the driving force in his life. That took faith. He he walked by faith. And understanding that, 
he's talking about these people who the number one reason for their existence was that they wanted to walk with God. And that's what he's showing us here. So as we look at this, it's about trusting God. The word faith, the word believe, and the word trust all have the same root word. As you guys may know that the New Testament, Koine Greek is the language it was written in, is a very precise language. So when we talk about faith, when we talk about believing, and we talk about trust, the same basis for for each of those words, the same word is used, the same root for those. So as we look at that, as we look at what does it mean to walk by faith, it's about trust, isn't it? Very often when I have talked with people, I will replace the word faith or with or the word belief with trust. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Do I trust him with the details of my life? And that's a good question. It's a good question for all of us to answer in our own hearts. So I'm going to look at four things here about trust as we wrap up this morning. The first is it's about trust in who he is. They trusted his character. When you think that God will not come through, what you're saying is I'm not sure about his character. I don't really believe that he is as wise as I am. I don't trust him. And folks, we don't, we're not usually, we don't usually take that direct of a route when we're dealing with unbelief in our own lives, but that's essentially what it comes down to. I I may not lip the words, I don't trust him, but if I'm struggling with something and I really don't want to go the way that I believe God wants me to go, it's because I really don't trust that he has this. I don't trust that he's going to work this out. And those are times when our faith is stretched. These people trusted him. What I would share with you is put who he is in front of whatever it is that you're facing. That's the point. So they didn't trust, or it's about trust in who he is. The second thing is it's about trust in what he says. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read, So he humbled you, this is God speaking, or Moses speaking to Israel, uh, he allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's faith. It takes faith to trust that he's got it. It's trusting what he says. Are you a person of God's word? Do you hold God's word high? Do you understand that God does speak to us? That he wants to take our hearts and mold them and shape them and conform them to the image of his son? It comes through understanding and trusting that what God says is what God means. The heart of the gospel is that God speaks, that he speaks to sinful men and women, that he draws them through the work of the cross into relationship with him. And that's hearing from him. And as we walk with him, I, that's why I pray so often, folks, Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. That's not these ears. It's not these eyes. They're the ones that are not part of the material realm because that's where faith is operating. Give me ears to hear. Give me spiritual ears. Give me spiritual eyes. Let me understand what it is you're saying to me. The third thing 
This is about trusting that he has this. I'm sorry. It's about trusting and enduring the pressures. They persisted against the pressure to go back and to let go, to walk away from their faith. That's why he says, don't cast away your confidence. Don't let go of this. Don't walk away. That would be horrible for you to do. He's saying to persist. Don't go back. Don't let go. In James chapter 1, James says, he says, count it all joy. When you go into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, that's the reward that we, as he tests us, as we go through these things, as we endure hardship, as we endure affliction, as we go through trials, as the Lord works in us, as he's taking us through these fiery ordeals, that's what James is talking about. He's producing something in us. He's producing godly character. Peter talks about it as well. The point is, is what pressures do you face? What the writer's encouraging us to do here is by faith to endure, persist, hold fast, to trust. The fourth thing here is it's about trusting that he has this. He's in control and it will work out. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I know what I'm going through. I know the things that are on my plate. And you may be in a place uh, where you're just blessed. Well, hold on to this because trials come, don't they? How much time, here's a question for you. How much time and energy do you expend with the seen world compared with how much time and energy you expend with the unseen You've looked at that. Faith by its its very nature is dealing in the unseen world. I don't know about you, but I get caught up in stuff. I, you know, things pull at me. Uh, I, I look at, I look out at our culture. It's fallen apart. I look out at the political landscape and I don't even want to go there. Neither do you. We'll be here till long afternoon. But, you know, you look at the, the drug problem. You look at the suicide rate. You look at politics. I, something that pulls at me, even errant theology, I get caught up in. I mean, I get disgusted when I read how much junk is out there that people are putting forth as coming from God. And I could get to the point where I get out of balance because I go, I love Philippians chapter four, whatever is pure. Whatever's peaceable, whatever's praiseworthy, whatever's of good report, let your mind dwell on these things because that other stuff will pull me down. So how much time do you spend in time with God? How much time do you spend in his word? How much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend in in fellowship with our Father? Those are good questions because... This material world, the, the world we live in, it pulls at us. It, it beckons to us. It wants a response. And sometimes in our men's group on, on Tuesday night, uh, we'll start talking about some of that stuff. And, and I just have to kind of say, okay, stop, hold it. Cause we'll, we'll start talking about politics. It, it gets, that's a surefire way to get us off into the weeds. But then I'll say, you know what, guys, that's for the coffee shop. You know what? We can go sit at the coffee shop and talk about what a wreck the United States is and all day. But here, I want it to be about Jesus. I want it to be about his word. I want to, by faith, enter into what he has for me. I love him. I know he loves me. 
and I want what he has for me. And by faith, I want to access what he has, and I want to appropriate what he has. I'm not going to do that if all I'm doing is focused on it. I'm grouching about all the things that are going wrong in our world. Yes, they're going wrong. And yes, they're worthy of our attention. I'm not saying they're not. But I'm saying that my life is centered as a man of faith, and I want that to be the mark of my life. I don't want it to be the mark of my life that all he walked around and did was just grump about everything. Because I know how to grump. I don't know about you. Amen? Amen? So as we look at this, faith is the, the substance or the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. To strengthen it, one must exercise it. Let's exercise the faith that we have, this measure of faith. He says it doesn't have to be much. It can be like a mustard seed. And that's enough. Let's pray. Father, just a quick glance at this thing called faith, this, this wonderful way that you've given us to have access to you. And Lord, by faith, we, we just come before you now. And, and I pray, Father, for each 